My name is Forrest Coleman. I'm a postdoc in Stephen Smith's lab in the Department of Molecular and Cellular Physiology here at Stanford, and welcome to NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. This week's guest is Peter Crino, a professor and vice chair of the Department of Neurology at Temple University and Shriners Hospital Pediatric Research Center. Thanks for joining us today, Professor Crino. Thanks, Forrest. So you received your MD from Yale before going on to do a PhD at BU. So that's a, a slightly unusual form of the MD-PhD. So could you describe uh, what led you into medicine initially and how you decided to switch uh, after completing your MD? Sure. And, and I'll, I'll even add a little extra twist. I, I actually started in graduate school first. So I started out uh, oh. thinking I was going to be a PhD neuroscientist. Uh, and that really came from the fact that I was, as an undergraduate, I was a psychology and philosophy major. And I was interested in, as many people who go into neuroscience are, uh, I was interested in sort of big issues of uh, sort of philosophy of mind and the idea of the sort of the, you know, mental construct and consciousness. But, you know, the, the uh, work in that field is not really very good these days in terms of a salary. So I figured I had to do something that's a little more tactile. Uh, so I got interested in psychophysics and experimental psychology. Uh, and then I was fortunate enough to get accepted to the neuroscience program at Boston University as a PhD graduate student. And my, my intent really was to study kind of the interface between disease and uh, normal brain function. And I wasn't really quite sure how I was going to go about doing that. I thought maybe physiology, I thought maybe some track tracing. Remember, this is now uh, 1983 or 84, so a lot of the sophisticated molecular techniques we had really just, we have that haven't been invented. And about two to three years into graduate school, I realized that I was much better at thinking about disease than I was about normal uh, brain function. Hmm. And uh, so I started getting interested in mechanisms leading to disease, both cellular and molecular, uh, and that piqued my interest in uh, neurology. And so that's how I ended up sort of doing both careers uh, together. I ended up finishing my graduate work at Boston University uh, while I was attending Yale Medical School uh, and actually got my degrees from both places about a week apart. So it was a busy year. That sounds uh, tremendously hectic. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how did you pull that off? Where were you living? What were you? I was commuting between New Haven and Boston. It's a couple hours. And uh, my doctoral mentor uh, allowed me to crash at his house. And so I'd come up for the week and crash at his basement. And then I drive back home. I would do medical school for the week and then go back up and do my work on the weekend. So it was a little crazy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of a, you know, uphill both ways, 10 miles to school kind of story. Yeah, that's, that's what it was. Exactly. Yeah. But it was fun. And I had great training at both places. And it really was a great opportunity to, to do both clinical medicine and to do research. Uh, and in fact, it really paved the way for what my career was going to be, which was really always walking that sort of mid-ground of translational aspects of neuroscience and how they apply to disease and what we can learn from disease in terms of understanding brain function. Yeah. So speaking of your graduate work, you worked with Ladislav Volosur at BU, uh, where you studied the molecular mechanisms underlying Alzheimer's disease. And in particular, you argued that Alzheimer's disease is caused in part by an increase in oxygen-derived free radicals, which leads to neuronal degeneration. And you demonstrated this by showing that an oxidized form of the neurotransmitter serotonin causes the kind of cell death seen in Alzheimer's patients. So 
Could you talk to us a little bit more about this hypothesis and how it informs our current understanding of what causes Alzheimer's disease? Oh, sure. Uh, I've been out of the Alzheimer's field uh, for a while, so I certainly can't give you the expert's view. I can tell you that at the time I was working on Alzheimer's, uh, really the idea of uh, tauopathies, synucleinopathies, uh, really had not come to the fore yet. Some of the molecular advents uh, just weren't around. This is, again, the 1980s. Um, really, the world was focusing on beta amyloid and the link to uh, amyloid precursor protein. That's kind of where the Alzheimer's field was. Had the genetic variant of APP been discovered yet? Just barely. Just yeah. barely. We were beginning to collect families and look. And the idea that uh, this was a molecular genetic process. Um, you remember at this time, really, the going idea was the cholinergic hypothesis for Alzheimer's disease was that there was a fundamental dysfunction in the cholinergic basal forebrain system. But how that happened uh, was really up for grabs. And, and what, so what was that based on at the, at the time? Just the fact that, the, that all the drugs that are used to treat it affect... Well, to be honest, for us, there were no drugs at the time, so oh. uh, there there were no interventions. The, none of the cholinergic uh, cholinergic drugs had really been introduced into clinical medicine yet. It was largely on very basic neuropharmacology, track tracing, uh, and good pathology analysis that showed cell loss in the nucleus basalis, the basal basal forebrain, the loss of cholinergic uh, cells coming out of that region. And at the same time, a very extensive investigation of the connections between entorhinal and hippocampus. So we were taking a much more systems approach towards Alzheimer's rather than a molecular genetic approach. We really just didn't have the knowledge then. Um, so we were trying to think, could there be some other neurotransmitter system that could be linked to Alzheimer's disease? And given the broad projections of the serotonergic system, that seemed like a reasonable candidate. My mentor at the time had come up with uh, some very interesting data looking in the cerebral spinal fluid of Alzheimer's patients and finding these highly oxidized metabolites. Um, and there were a variety of different metabolites. Some of them were dopaminergic type compounds, some were serotonergic, but most of them were aromatic ring compounds. As you know, aromatic ring compounds can be given to oxidation when exposed to free radicals and a variety of other stressors. And these molecules are very toxic to cell systems in vitro. Um, so one of the molecules that he identified was this molecule called 4,5-DKT or diketotryptamine, which was basically a keto-substituted uh, form of serotonin. And in vitro, it was highly toxic to neurons. And so we thought, gosh, serotonergic system projects to most of the rostral forebrain. It goes to the hippocampus and to rhinal cortex. It at least is a connectional substrate for where you might see some of the damage. So my job was really to investigate the toxicity of this compound, uh, see what it did in the mouse brain, see what it did in vitro, and try to characterize some of the toxic effects. It was, it was actually a very interesting project. Okay, so now fast forward 20 years and we know quite a bit more than, than we did at the time. How do you see this oxidation process and the toxicity that it presumably causes as fitting in with the other molecular mechanisms that we understand now? Yeah, I mean, I think clearly the molecular genetics of Alzheimer's disease has just raced ahead and we know that the probably the central pathogenesis does not lie with oxidized forms of any aromatic uh, neurotransmitter molecule. That said though, the field of lipid peroxidation and cell death has not gone away. In fact, it's actually grown. Um, and so based on what we did, we, we were able to show pretty clearly that both in in vitro and in vivo systems, uh, these toxic uh, metabolites really can wreak havoc in the brain. So it's unclear at this point in time when you think of a tauopathy or a synucleinopathy at the sort of the microstructural level what the effects of these compounds might be. Um, again, I, I don't think it's the central pathogenesis of Alzheimer's disease, but I'd be very surprised if it wasn't linked to some of the features that we see in terms of membrane changes and cell death. Sure. So is there any normal part of brain functioning that makes use of oxidized serotonin that we know of?
a very good question. So not really. We had a postdoc in the lab who was working on that, and, and it looked as though the conditions have to be just right to maintain these oxidized forms. The, the uh, synaptic cleft and the, does not like having highly oxidized forms of either dopamine or serotonin floating around. It works very hard to metabolize them and get rid of them rapidly. 4,5-DKT was rapidly catabolized by the existing enzymes that break down serotonin. So it's, it, there's a very avid structure set up to get rid of these, uh, to get rid of these molecules. Okay, so you then went on to do a postdoc in James Eberwein's lab at the University of Pennsylvania, where you studied dendritic development by isolating and analyzing mRNA localization in single dendritic growth chromes. So for anyone unfamiliar, a dendritic growth chrome is about two to four microns in length, you know, at the tip of a growing dendrite, as you would imagine. So the idea of collecting single growth cones sounds incredibly difficult. So first off, what reasons did you have to believe that growth cones contain their own mRNAs for local translation as opposed to transporting proteins elsewhere? So, you know, the uh, story about local translation has been a just a fantastic story uh, by which we've looked at uh, the function of the nervous system as uh, sort of this ultra-structurally compartmentalized uh, unit. Um, the idea that uh, gene transcription and, and protein translation takes place sort of within the cell soma has been the dogma for many years, but some very early uh, studies by Ozzie Stewart and others demonstrated just using conventional electron microscopy that you could see uh, ordered polyribosomes mm -hmm. uh, underneath synaptic clefts, and, and, and the idea was that these structures were setting up for local protein synthesis. Um, but of course, this is really kind of an ultra-structural analysis, and there really hadn't been any demonstration of either the translational apparatus uh, other than ribosomes or the presence of messenger RNAs. Now, Jim Everwein uh, is a, a phenomenal neuropharmacologist and molecular biologist um, who became interested in the idea that maybe in the dendritic cytoplasm, what we have is this interesting concept of sort of a or stretched out version of the somatic cytoplasm we see in so many other cells. And that, in fact, the presence of endoplasmic reticulum in the uh, dendritic cytoplasm, the fact that there's ribosomes, that there's rapid transport, um, he came up with the idea that perhaps this would be an area where we can begin to do mRNA expression profiling. Uh, he had a very talented technician at the time who uh, demonstrated that you could cut single dendrites and using a technology that uh, Jim pioneered, which is using oligo-DT and poly-A messenger RNA primer, um, that he could use sequential rounds of mRNA amplification to take very, very small quantities of mRNA, make lots and lots of it so that you can do quantification. Um, and really much of, I, I would say much of what we do now, uh, you know, things like RNA-seq now have begun to sort of replace you know, old, more old-fashioned kind of array analogies, you know, uh, analysis like oligo-arrays and cDNA arrays. But, geez, back in the, you know, in the 19, early 1990s, this was state-of-the-art at the time. Yeah. And, in fact, you could use uh, an oligo-DT primer to uh, amplify poly-A messenger RNA from just about any place that you wanted to. Um, so the dendrite work was ongoing in the lab, and I was interested in the idea that the dendritic growth cone could be involved in sort of a very kind of uh, rapid protein translational mechanism where it could sense uh, cues in the environment, either attractive or repulsive cues, and then predicated on those cues could then decide what proteins it was going to express in response to those cues. Um, and so the idea was to use a fine pulled glass electrode. And what you do is you basically pull it to a sharp tip you identify growth cones. We use neocortical neurons and hippocampal neurons. In culture, I assume. Sure, that's correct. In culture. And you look under light microscopy, turn up the face so you can image these things uh, basically with the naked eye. 
And then very, very gently, you draw the glass electrode across at the juncture between the growth cone and the dendrite. Uh, mm -hmm. It makes a little cut and the dendroplasm seals off. So the membrane seals off. And so the dendrite actually kind of sits and is okay. And the growth cone is just sitting there as a little blob. You then bring in a second electrode and you just gently aspirate the dendrite uh, growth cone into the electrode. That contents is transferred to a tube and then you basically just do a conventional uh, mRNA amplification technology. Hmm, interesting. So so what were you able to learn about what messages are in, in the growth cone and, and were you able to confirm this idea that you had that they might be... Uh differentially responding or, or... That was a paper that was published in Neuron. That was the basically the substance of my postdoctoral fellowship. Um, and um, it took an awful long time to do that because we were, at that point in time, we didn't have uh, large-scale arrays, either cDNA or oligoarrays. And so what we were doing was basically a candidate array approach. Where we basically made our own nylon arrays uh, using uh, cDNAs encoding candidate genes. So, of course, the logical choices would be neurotransmitter receptor subunits, uptake sites, cytoskeletal molecules, gap junctions. And we actually found that there was, in fact, sort of a developmental profile from six hours in culture to 72 hours in culture with different messages being expressed in dendritic growth cones over time. Uh, and we did find glutamate receptors, GABAS receptor subunits, and a variety of other uh, genes, which amazingly, over the ensuing 10 years, were really corroborated by other scientists who found them in the dendritic cytoplasm moving up and down the dendrite. Um, as you know, the field of uh, local protein synthesis has basically exploded over the last 15 years, and now it's even moved into the area of the axoplasm, and there's evidence that there's protein synthesis in the axon, and it governs axon outgrowth. So the idea that the neuron is essentially processing genes, not just in the perisomatic region, but at, at lengths yeah. from the uh, soma, uh, really does impart a whole molecular spin to the, you know, the functional attributes of the neuron. So it, it was kind of exciting at the time. So, the, sorry, the things that you described sounded like things that would make sense to be translated in the dendrite in general. What about the growth cone specifically? Yeah, so we found a lot of uh, neurotrophin receptors, so track A, track B, track C, things that would be sensitive to growth factors. We found uh, a couple of other, like EGF receptor, things like that, that are clearly responsive to growth factors in the media. Um, again, we were using a candidate approach, so we didn't have a whole, you know, transcriptome approach. So. Uh, subsequent to this, many others have gone on at least look in the dendrite and have found that many of these messages are present in the dendrite. Uh, in fact, there's been very good evidence that the entire translational apparatus is in the dendrite. Uh, an extension of this work that we did was published in PNAS a couple of years after that was demonstrating that we could find in the distal dendrite, we could actually find transcription factor uh, RNAs. Uh, mm -hmm. And we did some collaborations and showed that many of these transcription factors are translated locally in the distal dendrite and retrogradely transported down to the nucleus where they can be taken up into the nucleus and impact gene transcription. So there's, I think, a very potent bi-directional flow of molecular information in the cell. And uh, I, you know, it's been corroborated by a lot of different groups. So also while you were in the Eberwein lab, you began to study a disease called tuberous sclerosis, and let's call it TS to keep my tongue untied, um, <laughs> which, which is caused by mutations in a family of genes involved in the mTOR signaling pathway. So most people who are familiar with the mTOR pathway associate it with the pathogenesis of various cancers. Uh, but there's been a lot of research over the past decade or so showing that a number of cognitive disorders such as TS are also linked to the dysregulation of this pathway. Can you explain what TS is and talk a little bit about how the mTOR pathway fits in and how dysregulation of mTOR can lead to disease? Sure. No, those are all very good questions. Um, and this is, a, this is a great example of how your career can take a turn into a small little niche area. 
and then it becomes your entire career. So the bulk of my career over the past uh, 17 years has been focusing on malformations of cerebral cortical development, and I've used tuberous sclerosis as sort of the platform disorder to understand. Now, when I started uh, working on TS, we did not know the molecular cause. We didn't know the genes. Uh, rapidly in the course of my postdoc and then neurology residency, both TSC genes were identified, TSC1 and TSC2. Uh, it was then subsequently found that those two genes play an important role in regulating insulin growth factor, uh, insulin-like growth factor signaling in eukaryotic uh, cells. And the downstream cascade is basically IGF to PI3K to PDK to AKT to TSC1 to TSC2 to mTOR. <laughs> um, and this sort of canonical signaling cascade uh, is incredibly relevant to numerous uh, functions that are related to the nervous system uh, in terms of cell size, stem cell maintenance, process outgrowth, polarity, um, and on the other side of it, autophagy and cell death. Tuberous sclerosis is a disease in which there is a loss of function mutation in either TSC1 or TSC2. It's an autosomal dominant disorder. It's a multi-system disorder. Um, it affects about 1 in 6 to 10,000 live births. Uh, about 40% of people with TS will have autism, about 80% will have epilepsy. So there's a clear uh, neurological phenotype in these patients. The characteristic features pathologically are the formations of these um, abnormal areas of cerebral cortex known as tubers, and that's the eponymous distinction for tuberous sclerosis. These are basically maldevelopment uh, of the cerebral cortex where the normal hexalaminar structure of the cortex is completely lost. Um, and there's the appearance of these very uh, dysmorphic looking cells that are known as balloon cells or giant cells. Uh, they're two to three times the size of normal uh, pyramidal neurons. Uh, they have no real polarity in terms of axons or dendrites. Uh, they have this very, very large sort of glassy, pale uh, cytoplasm. They often have two nuclei. And interestingly, they robustly express a whole host of stem cell markers, such as bimentin and nestin and SOX2 and some other things. Are they excitable? So they're pretty quiet, actually. Uh, it's not known what the lineage of these cells might be. It's either a neuroglial progenitor cell. Uh, there are some other suggestions, but I think most people think they're a neuroglial progenitor cell that sort of has failed to differentiate down a particular lineage. If you poke them, um, Carlos Cepeda has done some very nice work to actually do recording from these cells. They're pretty quiet. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's not believed that they cause, for example, epilepsy in these patients. However, their presence clearly disrupts the normal cytoarchitecture. It's turned out over the past 10 years, work from my lab and, and many other labs have demonstrated that there's now fully probably about 10 neurodevelopmental disorders that have been linked to aberrations in mTOR signaling. And I wrote a review paper a few years ago, and I coined the term mTORopathy to refer to these disorders. And these include things like tuberous sclerosis, hemimegalencephaly, cortical dysplasia, fragile X syndrome, ganglioglioma, a whole sort of host of disorders in which the unifying features are abnormal brain structure, altered cognition, and intractable uh, epilepsy. Um, the way mTOR seemed to uh, cause these dysregulation in morphology is still being addressed. Clearly, mTOR controls protein translation. Um, if you, in basically any cell system, if you either reduce an inhibitor of mTOR signaling or you augment mTOR signaling, you will get a large cell that's bigger than uh, normal. So clearly, it's linked to regulation of, of cell size. Um, how it's linked to epilepsy is, is still being worked on. There's some evidence to suggest that, that just having over-exuberant mTOR signaling will confer excitability to cells. 
there's other evidence to suggest that it's sort of a cell uh, non-autonomous effect, that it's sort of a disruption of the cerebral cortical architecture. It's not exactly known at this point. Yeah, so, so moving into epilepsy. So because mTOR has been also implicated in cancer, there is a drug that was approved called rapamycin, which inhibits mTOR. Uh, and right. you recently, you've shown that this drug, when given to people with a different rare neurological disorder called pretzel syndrome, uh, it can prevent seizures in these patients. So this isn't generally true of all mTOR-related epilepsy, right? It's unclear. So right now we know that pretzel syndrome is a disorder that is found among the old order Amish or Mennonite community in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And um, the reason I got involved with it is that the gene responsible for pretzel syndrome is a gene called STRAD-alpha. STRAD-alpha binds to another protein known as LKB1, both of which signal through AMPK uh, to affect uh, the activation state of one of the TS genes, TSC2. So it's part of the pathway, and actually I've lumped it in with the, with the mTORopathies. These children have a, because it is an autosomal recessive disorder, unlike a dominant disorder, basically it's a full knockout, so there's a 6-exon deletion in the gene, and the penetrance is 100%. It's a founder mutation, which means that all of the patients have the same mutation, and consequently the phenotype is identical for all the patients, which is 100% of them have very severe epilepsy by eight months of age, profound neurocognitive abnormality, as well as motor and other neurologic deficits. Um, so just like tuberous sclerosis, the loss of function of STRAD leads to and confers a phenotype of very exuberant mTOR signaling. The challenge with using mTOR inhibition in tuberous sclerosis is that not every patient with TS will develop epilepsy. So it's hard to know what the landscape is for any individual patient. So if you give them an mTOR inhibitor and they don't have seizures, well, is that because the mTOR drug worked or because maybe they weren't going to have seizures? Gotcha. The reason we tried rapamycin in pretzel syndrome is because the penetrance of the phenotype is 100%. So any effect we would see, we would believe is due to mTOR inhibition. Um, so we tried this out in a very small cohort of five patients initially. Now we have up to about 10 patients that are being treated. Um, and we showed in preclinical studies that it very clearly rescues the enhanced mTOR signaling. Um, and as a consequence, the five children who were started on the medicine basically did not develop seizures, or one or two of them had a couple of seizures, but basically are seizure-free. There has subsequently been work in tuberous sclerosis to suggest that while the benefit is not as robust as what we see in pretzel syndrome, there is a benefit that is conferred to tuberous sclerosis. And in fact, the field is moving forward now to look at many of these other mTOR-associated disorders and sort of decide you know, how would we implement uh, mTOR inhibition in a clinical scenario for these patients? So is this the first example of rampamycin being used in a neurological disorder? So it has been tried, not for epilepsy, it hasn't been tried. It has been tried for uh, a particular tumor type, again, getting back to your comments about yeah. cancer, basically, uh, in tuberous sclerosis, it clearly can shrink the tumor size. But no, our paper was the first to demonstrate a change in uh, an epilepsy phenotype in an mTOR disorder. So you do have quite some hope that maybe for other mTOR-related epilepsies, this will this will be that might might be more general. Absolutely, I, I think what what's very interesting is that. Um, there was a beautiful study by Mike Wong and colleagues a few years ago in a conditional TSC1 knockout mouse strain. And basically what they found was that the mice developed spontaneous seizures. What they did was they knocked out TSC1 under a, a GFAP promoter in, uh, in mice. And the, the, the presumption is that it's a largely astrocytic knockout. It turns out it's probably got some neuronal effect as well. But what's important is that the mice develop a spontaneous epilepsy phenotype by four weeks of age. This was published in like 2007, 2008. Um, if you give these animals rapamycin, 
before they develop uh, epilepsy. They will never develop epilepsy as long as they remain on rapamycin. If you take rapamycin away, they will begin to uh, start having spontaneous seizures again. If you wait to give them rapamycin after the seizures have started, there is an effect, but it's not nearly as robust. And the reason I say that is by way of introduction, the notion that I think for these drugs to be efficacious, we're going to have to start very, very early on. And, and implementing therapy in someone who's had epilepsy for 10 or 20 years, I'm not so confident that's going to be effective. Um, the reason in pretzel syndrome, I think it works so well, is we started the children before they ever had seizures. We started them at three and four months of age. Uh, no one's quite done that yet in tuberous sclerosis. No one's quite tried that in hemimegalencephaly or fragile X syndrome. So. Um, I, I think the idea of the temporal profile of when to start these drugs is going to really be important in the next five years as we go forward. And exactly the challenge you pointed out, I mean, in a, in a disease where you're not guaranteed to get epilepsy, at what point are you going to start a kid on a... Exactly right. And just the ethics of doing that study is a little challenging. You know, uh, the drug is, like most drugs, is not a completely benign drug, a med a medication. There's clearly some side effects. Um, and so putting a child on a medicine that might not be doing anything after all, I think is going to be uh, a little, a little challenging. Hmm. Uh, so finally, could you give us a preview of what you plan to talk about in your visit here to Stanford? So I, I'm going to keep with the mTOR theme. That's really been the, the focus of my lab for the last decade. We've been working on all the possible permutations of, uh, how altering mTOR signaling can lead to altered brain development. Um, I'm going to try to walk between some of the data that we have in tuberous sclerosis, kind of using TS as a, as a, as I said, as a platform disease to understand the cascade. I will present a little bit of the data on pretzel syndrome uh, in terms of some of the molecular biology and some of the cell signaling data. Um, I will talk a little bit about some data that we've had in the lab uh, describing a possible association between uh, human papillomavirus and brain malformations. Uh, HPV obviously is a common cause of cervical dysplasia and cervical cancer, um, but it also is a, a potent activator of mTOR signaling. And so we've been interested in sort of considering the possibility that some focal malformations in the brain may actually result from an in utero uh, viral infection. Um, and then I'll talk a little bit about some of the other new directions we've been going in, uh, looking at how mTOR may contribute to uh, abnormal brain function in terms of cognitive disabilities uh, and, and epilepsy as well. Oh, cool. Well, we'll look forward to it. So in closing, we like to do a series of uh, quick, quick answer questions. Um, okay. So if you could go back in time uh, and talk to yourself as a graduate student, you specifically, uh, what advice would you give yourself other than not being crazy and commuting between uh, New Haven and Boston? Um, I, I think I would have told myself to enjoy it more. Uh, being a graduate student is uh, an incredibly unique part in your life, uh, part of your life because you are really just devoted completely to the beauty of doing science. You're actually the one doing the science itself. I think most principal investigators that you talk to, certainly at Stanford and any other large institution, will tell you that most of the science you do is really by proxy. Somebody else is doing it. Um, there's a beauty to doing the science yourself, actually getting your hands in there, and whether you're cutting growth cones or patch clamping uh, single cells or running gels or whatever you're doing. It's a time in your life where you're a craftsman and you're practicing in art. Um, and, and you don't ever get that back. It's really tough to do it when you're a PI, when you're going to committee meetings and other administrative meetings and always writing grants and writing papers. So uh, enjoy it. It's a really important part of your life. We were going to ask whether you had more fun uh, during your MD years or your PhD years, but they're kind of intertwined, so it's not, not really a fair question. Yeah, no, I've never been one to try to uh, disconnect those two. I do not believe in the idea that this is a hat-switching thing. It's not. 
what I tell MD PhD students is it's a pair of spectacles that you put on uh, and it's a different pair of spectacles than someone who practices clinical medicine purely or someone who does basic science purely. It, it's different. You're really thinking about translational attributes of how you can slide between disease and normal function and what disease teaches you about normal and what normal teaches you about disease. Um, so, I, as you know, you're a postdoc. There's tough stuff in grad school. Uh, there's t I did a postdoc as well. Uh, there's tough stuff in postdoc, but it's all uh, it's all good. It's all good. So I'll, I'll I'll phrase the question differently. What did you do for fun? What fun did you manage to have outside of the fun of working in lab in those years? Right, right. Um, well, the you know the 35 minutes of fun I guess you get in a day. Uh, <laughs> you know, I've I've been a uh, guitar player for a year. I played in a couple of bands. I was a blues guitar player. Uh, I'm an avid skier. Uh, I'm an avid martial artist. Um, I do a lot of uh, reading. I still read philosophy a lot. There's still a part of me that would love to go back and study philosophy at Oxford or something fun like that. Mm -hmm. um, and just, you know, make sure you hang out with friends and realize that, that life exists both in the lab and outside the lab. It's important to nurture those relationships. Uh, and if you were to have a job other than being a scientist or a doctor in your case, what, what would it be? Oh, boy, that's a tough one. I'd have to say a musician. Yeah. I think I'd love to be, I think I'd like to have a job where I worked as a bartender part-time <laughs> and played in a really good blues band. <laughs> oh, great. All right. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today, Dr. Crino. Thanks, Forrest, for your time. I appreciate it. And thank you all for listening. We'll hope you join us next week when our guest will be Suzanne Paradas, an assistant professor of biology at Brandeis University. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Erica Senor, Mark Pavelina, and myself. For more information about Neurotalk and Neurite West, please visit our website at www.neuroblog.stanford.edu.